Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Father, again, we are seeking your presence in our midst. We're seeking the power of your spirit as we open your holy word. Father, may, may what is said may be guided by your spirit for our edification and for your glory. It is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice the title of our message is A Perfect Reflection, and we'll start with the story of Christy Henrik. Christy Henrik was an athletically gifted gymnast who narrowly missed making the 1988 United States Olympic team. Weighing on just under 100 pounds at the time, Christy was convinced that she missed making the team because she was simply too fat. Like most professional athletes, she was a bit of a perfectionist who believed that a little more hard work was all that stood in the way of her aspirations. She began to attack her weight as though her weight was the enemy. And what started as a diet digressed into full-blown anorexia and bulimia. In the coming months and years, she became too weak to compete and was forced to retire from the sport. And even with the realization that that her goal was unattainable, she continued succumbing to her compulsion of losing weight. Christy died of multiple organ failure just 10 days after her 22nd birthday, weighing just 60 pounds. Christy was a perfectionist. A perfectionist. What What is it to be perfectionist? What is perfectionism? Well, if we were to define the word... Perfectionism is often defined as the need to be or to appear perfect or even that to believe that it is possible to achieve perfection. Now, if, if we were to define what the, the term perfect is, if we were to define what a perfect thing is or, or a, a perfect person, that would be someone or something free from flaws and defects. That's what a perfect thing is, a perfect person is. And so uh, perfectionism would be defined as the need to appear uh, uh, free from flaws or defects, or, or at the very least, to think that it is possible for you to achieve that goal. It's typically actually viewed as a positive trait. You say, oh, you know, you, you may brag a little bit, yeah, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Right? You see it as a positive trait rather than a flaw. And many people talk about healthy perfectionism to describe uh, 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 this perfectionist behavior, to justify it. But but, but if you ever uh, known anybody who who is a perfectionist, you know that that, that there's some can lead to self-defeating thoughts and actions that actually make it more difficult for you to achieve your goals. Thoughts come up to your mind like, like believing that nothing you do is good enough if it's not perfect. Never being proud of your work or, or, or your progress. And, you know, it, it could be that some of you feel like you're a perfectionist. And, and, may, and it may have something to do with your upbringing. You know, I'll be honest with you. I'll be a little vulnerable here. But I grew up in an environment where I was told that nothing that I did was good enough. That, um, that I needed to, meet, to do better. In fact, I, I grew up in an environment that I've always called that I was the dumb person or the dumb child. 
And now, I, I wouldn't say that I am a perfectionist, but, but I will tell you that in growing up in that environment has pushed me always to try harder, to, to, to do it better. Now, you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong for you to push yourself to do better. But I will tell you that it has affected my life. In particular, I will tell you that it affected my, uh, uh, my raising of my children. Because what, what, what ha- ended up happening is that I was always constantly pushing them to do better. And if they didn't do better, there was something wrong. And maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you, you're dealing with the same thing. But now you may think about this, and you already read the, 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 we already read the scripture reading. We cannot deny or ignore the fact that God's call for Christians is to be perfect. Isn't it? We saw it in our scripture reading, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be what? You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This passage is pretty clear. Yeah, there's no misunderstanding this. Uh, We are called to be perfect. Now, God, of course, is perfect. We would define God as someone free from flaws and defects. God is perfect, yes or no? So Jesus' call for Christians is that we are also perfect. That means that we are to be free from flaws and defects. That's what it says, isn't it? Or does it? This is a tall glass to drink, wouldn't you say? Let me ask you a question. How many of you, and by the way, be honest. Nobody's going to criticize you or anything. Be honest. How many of you believe that you are perfect? Let me see the hands. All right. How many of you know somebody that either believes it's perfect or that you think that person's perfect? How many of you believe, uh, know somebody? Oh, I see some hands now. Now some hands are raising up. That somebody that you believe, by the way, it's got to be somebody in this life, okay? So somebody you believe that it is perfect, that, that you, you say that person's perfect, you know, or, you know, or maybe they think they're perfect, okay? But yeah, just a few hands. The first one, Sherman, nobody said anything. So, so those perfect people aren't here. Huh? Oh, you did raise your hand. What, did, you, did you raise your hand because you're perfect or because you know somebody who's perfect? Oh, see, come on, listen. I'm the one preaching the sermon here. Let's just pray and go home. Taryn, I just preached. You need to talk, man. You're stealing my thunder. All right, so, okay. How many of you believe, though, that God wants you to be perfect? Let me see the hands now. Woo! Oh boy. Now, think about this. If God wants us to be perfect, there must be a way, we can surmise that perfection is an achievable goal, right? If God wants us to be perfect, God's not going to ask anything of us that is impossible to attain. So therefore, if God wants us to be perfect, it is an achievable goal, amen? Amen? Does that make sense? Okay, we agree on that. We agree on that. All right. 
Well, you know, in the past, uh, past year or so, you know, there's always been a method, there's always a method to my madness, as it were, right? There's always a reason why I preach certain messages, okay? We've been talking a lot about the fact that the reality that we are sinners, that we have a sinful nature, Amen. We have a common problem. You remember, we talked about that in our, in our, in our week of prayer in Romans, the common uh, a journey through the book of Romans, what it means to be saved. We have a common problem, that is sin. Do we? Right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God did not give up on us. He has provided the solution. He has provided the common solution, which is who? Jesus Christ. And because Jesus paid our debt, because he, he took our spot there on the cross, we are saved. Our, our sins have been forgiven, and we have been declared righteous. Righteousness by faith or justification by faith, right? We are saved, and it isn't because of our works, is it? Now, this is not on your screen, but, but Philippians 3.9 says, And be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which uh, is by faith in Christ's righteousness, which is from God, through faith. It is that faith, that, that's that righteousness that we have. So we can be sure of our salvation. Can we be sure of our salvation? We don't, we, we don't have to be looking around looking like this. Are you saved? Well, man, I'm, I'm working on it. I uh, hope so. No, we can be sure about salvation because it doesn't depend upon you. It depends upon what Christ has done on your behalf. But now, there's a growing movement among Christians today that believe that if Christians living in the last generation are to be saved, they must achieve a state of perfection. And they equate perfection with sinlessness. Now, this isn't anything really new. Um, this is something that has been around for hundreds of years. It really has bounced from denomination to denomination over the years. But I would say that more recently, this is something that is gaining a lot of traction in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'd say that the issue is that Christians living in the last generation. By the way, how many of you believe we're living in the last days? You know, wait, 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 you know we see the signs, right? Jesus talked about this. There's no mistaking about it. We are living in the last days. So let's, let's, for the sake of argument, if we're living in the last days, then wouldn't it make sense to say that we're the last generation? So, so, so this, this, this belief now is that, that Christians living in the last generation, that would be you and I, if Jesus is indeed coming soon, right, as we believe, then if we are to be saved, we must achieve a state of perfection or sinlessness. And those who believe in that lean on this passage you see there on the screen, because it's unmistakable. The Bible says, therefore be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, as you probably expect, we're going to look at the context of this passage because we cannot just take a passage out of its context. We must uh, uh, read it in context to understand what it says. And we're going to look at this context of this passage here in a little bit. But first, uh, uh, it's important that I explain something that I have mentioned many times before here. Uh, and this is what we're going to be talking about today. This, um, this thing that is called last generation theology. Any of you heard of this before? Last generation theology. I, I'm, I'm surprised, quite frankly, because it is something that is gaining a lot of traction 
in, um, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And to be fair, th- there are a number of scholars and, and well-known pastors that are associated with last generation theology. In fact, even Ellen White has been associated with this, although I would argue that uh, it's because she's been taken out of context. So, I mean, you think uh, Ellen White, you think of, um, if you know a little bit of Adventist history, E.J. Wagoner, M.L. Andreessen, Herbert Douglas, C. Mervyn Maxwell, Dennis Preeby, Kevin Paulson, Larry Kirkpatrick, Stephen Bohr, and there are others who've been associated with this. Now, I'm gonna give you a general description or definition of what last generation theology is, and then I'm going to later show you some quotes from them so that I can't be accused of saying this is what the pastor's saying that they say, but that's not what they really believe. So last generation theology, notice the belief that the final atonement, which Jesus is to carry out in the heavenly sanctuary, demands a, a level of sinless perfection from the last generation of God's professed believers that would allegedly vindicate God's demands for perfect obedience to the law. God has to be vindicated, and God will be vindicated by this last generation, right? Notice sinless perfection from the last generation. And if we're the last generation, that means us, okay? That means us. Notice, if God does not receive vindication from this last generation uh, of the perfectly sinless remnant, notice he loses out in the great controversy between Christ and Satan. So the outcome of this great controversy, which you would have thought was settled on the cross, apparently isn't, and is dependent upon you, and dependent upon me. Hmm? This is, uh, in a general ballpark, what it means. Uh, now, besides Matthew 5.48, which we saw, therefore be perfect, just like your Father in heaven is perfect, uh, uh, those that subscribe to last generation theology also again use uh, some of the writings of Mrs. White and take it out of context. And there's one in particular that they mention from Christ's Object Lessons. Do something, you probably are familiar with this one. Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he shall come to claim him as his own. You've seen that, that passage before, right? And so the idea, the, the way that it's interpreted, is that until we achieve perfection, then, then Christ will come. In other words, Christ cannot come until you achieve a level of perfection and sinlessness. That's how it's interpreted. Now, just like the Bible, Mrs. White has context, so we need to look at the context also uh, to understand these statements. Now, to be fair, now, uh, last generation theology is also known as final generation theology, final generation vindication, or they simply describe themselves as conservative Adventists who, who want to ensure that the church is not leaning toward a liberal theology where sin is not taken seriously and obedience is not necessary. Now, I would, I would say that th- there is good intentions with this. Sure, we want, we want to make sure that we don't take sin too, uh, too loosely, right? We want to ensure that once you accept Christ, it doesn't mean that you can just sit back and say, all right, I can live life the way I want to. There is a growth process, right? And we take sin seriously. So, so it's important to qualify because there, there, there may be some who are criticized and say, well, you're talking about this because you want to take sin too, ser- too, too loosely. No, 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 no. Sin is a reality, it's something serious, and something with the help of God we need to be able to conquer. But again, there is good intentions uh, behind this. Unfortunately, like everything, it's taken to the extreme. 
And so I'm going to quote them directly. In particular, I'm going to quote uh, a scholar, some of you may have heard of him, who is uh, most of the time credited the most for this belief. And his name is M.L. Andreasen. Now, M.L. Andreasen, um, he died in 1962. So he was born in the 1800s, died in 1962. He's written a number of things. In fact, I have a, a book called A Sanctuary Service by M.L. Andreasen, who I, which I bought almost 20 years ago because it is so good in describing the process and the rituals of the sanctuary and everything. But unfortunately, even that book leans very heavy on this liberal uh, last generation theology. But before I quote Mr. Andreasen, we must acknowledge the reality that the Bible teaches that, that, the, that holiness is necessary. Notice, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling the church, and by extension us, that indeed uh, we ought to be, be holy. Notice, it is God who does this, right? God of peace himself will sanctify you. In other words, for, for God to make you holy, for God to make you blame, blameless. But now when we think about the word holy, we automatically comes to our mind, we automatically think, well, if God, want, God is holy, God is perfect, if we are to be holy, that means to be we are to be perfect. That's the, 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 the syllogism, if you will. But what does the word holy mean? What is it? Set apart. We talked about perfect. Perfect is something or someone free from flaws or defects. Holiness is to be set apart. Is it the same thing? Obviously not. Obviously not. There are two different definitions. It doesn't mean the same thing. Notice 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your what? Your sanctification. Now, we've talked about this word sanctification. In fact, during our week of prayer on Romans, we talked about three words. We talked about justification. Then we said sanctification, and we talked about glorification. Justification is that declaration of righteous status uh, that God gives to you the moment you accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That is righteousness by faith. That is part of the gospel, friends. Not, it isn't that God makes you righteous. Is that God declares you righteous on account of Jesus. And, and since it happens the moment you accept Jesus, if you have accepted Christ already, this is something that happened in your past already. Amen. Sanctification, on the other hand, is spiritual growth. It is a lifelong process. Amen. We are growing spiritually. When you're, when, you're, when you're born again, you're a baby in Christ. But God doesn't want you to stay as a baby. He wants you to mature. He wants you to grow. It is his will that you grow. Sanctification, and then glorification is a future. Well, sanctification was God doing presently in your life. Glorification is something future, right? 1 Corinthians 15, when this corruptible body shall be turned into incorruption. Glorified, that is still a future event upon the coming of Christ. So there's no question about the fact that we do have a responsibility to walk in God's way, to obey him out of love, because what he has accomplished on our behalf through Christ. But again, it is God who does the sanctification. Yes, it is he who empowers you to do this. Not, not, this is not something that you achieve on your own. Now, how can we be, be preserved blameless? Paul says to be preserved blameless. Because again, when we think about being blameless, in our minds, well, that must mean that, that I'm perfect if I don't have blame. How, do, how are we blameless? 
Well, it's not a trick question. Again, once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are declared righteous. His righteousness becomes yours. And since his righteousness becomes yours, then you are blameless. There's no trick to that. There's no trick to that question, friends. It is because of what God has accomplished. All right, so let let me share with you a few statements written by M.L. Andres, and so I can't be accused of saying something that it isn't true, okay? Um, M.L. Andreessen, notice what he writes. The final demonstration, oh, I, I missed uh, one passage, but that's all right. The final demonstration of the gospel, or what the gospel can do in and for humanity is still in the future. Now, of course, again, he dies in 1962, so obviously, born in the 1800s, he's looking ahead. He's saying, what the gospel can do has not been shown yet. It's still in the future from his perspective. Now, if we, of course, are living in the last days, it must be referring to us. It is the last generation of men living on earth that God's power on earth, that on, on the, I'm sorry, it is, the last, it is in the last generation of men living on the earth, that God's power unto sanctification will be fully revealed. The demonstration of that power is God's vindication. Notice, the demonstration of that power is God's vindication. So God will be vindicated as he shows this power in the last generation. This is page 5 and 13 from this book. Um, Page 24, notice the demonstration which God intends to make in the last generation on earth means much both to God, both to people and to God. And notice the question that must be answered. Can God's law really be kept? Now, let me ask you, do you believe God's law can be kept? Let me see your hands. You believe God's law can be kept? Well, maybe, maybe not everybody believes it. Okay. All right, so you believe God's law can be kept. How do you know? What evidence do you have that God's law can be kept? Jesus. Jesus, right? Jesus kept the law. He was sinless. The Bible says that he was without sin. Jesus showed that the law, you know, of course, Jesus was 100% divine, mystery of mysteries. 100% 100% divine, 100% human. But in his humanity, he was obedient to his father. He showed that the law could be kept. God doesn't need evidence that the law could be kept because there's already evidence been given. Amen. Jesus kept the law. Amen. Jesus kept the law. But Andreas continues saying, this is in page 25, yet to produce a people that will keep the law is a task which God himself set himself and which he expects to accomplish. Notice, uh, God will produce these people, this last generation, as it were, to, that will perfectly keep the law, that will be perfectly sinless. He expects to accomplish this. It is God who does it. Okay, well, that makes sense to us. But if God can accomplish this, or that he could have made these people uh, uh, that would perfectly keep his law and be perfectly sinless, why does he wait to the last generation? I mean, why not do it before? I mean, wouldn't that save us a lot of headaches and ha- save him a lot of headaches too? Why does he wait to the last generation? Well, Mr. Andres does answer that question. And notice what he says. I mean, this is a question, why wait to the last generation? Page 27 and 28, notice what he says. This is important, this part that I'm going to share with you. 
When God commands men to keep his law, it does not serve the purpose he has in mind to have only a few men keep it, just, to know, to sh- uh, just enough to show it can be done. So notice what he's saying here. It doesn't serve God, it doesn't help him if just one or two here and there are able to keep the law. You know, it, it doesn't serve his purpose. Just one or two does it. If, they, if one or two does it, notice. It is not in line, it is not in line with God's character to pick out outstanding men of strong purpose and superb training and demonstrate to them that, uh, that, that this can be done. And so notice, again, it doesn't serve God. You know, there may be some, you may think of some people, including, of course, Jesus, that kept the law perfectly, but maybe it's because they, have, they, they had a strong purpose, Terrence, that they were consecrated people. They had some training, and, and, and they were able to do this. Well, it doesn't serve God's purpose because they kept the law. The argument could be made because, you know, they, they had the training. They had their strong purpose. That's why they were able to do it. That doesn't help God either. Apparently, from what Mr. Andreas is saying, no. He says, it is much more in harmony with his plan to make his requirement such that even the weakest need not fail, so that none would ever say that God demands that which can, uh, can only be done by a few. So it doesn't serve his purpose if the strong do it, because they're strong. It serves his purpose if only those that are weak can do it. All right? It is for this purpose, or for this reason, he says, he, got, he answers this question, why are we waiting for the last generation? It is for this reason that God has reserved this demonstration for the last generation. This generation bears the results of accumulated sins. And so, in other words, the, the last generation has it far worse than any generation before. This is why he chooses the last generation to uh, uh, make this, um, uh, uh, this, this sinless perfect uh, remnant. So notice... His explanation. If, uh, if, if, if any are weak, they are. If any suffer from inherited tendencies, they do. If any, have an ex- uh, if, if any have an excuse because of weakness of any kind, they have it. If therefore these can keep the commandments, there's no excuse for anyone in any other generation to do so. This is why they explain that God chooses, chooses the last generation. Because in a very subtle way, what he's saying is that those living in the last generation will have it far worse than anybody else in history. But now, I would say that maybe he has a little bit of a point. We know Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says that there shall be a time of trouble such as there never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So we can understand, we understand that the tribulation will be a difficult time. But here, what what he's saying in this context of becoming perfect and sinless is that the last generation will have it far worse than anybody else in history, including Jesus. Including Jesus. See, Jesus lived without sin. He perfectly obeyed the law. But the argument can be made is that he, he was able to do it because he didn't have it as bad as the last generation. You see how that goes? That's the only conclusion that we can come up with if we subscribe to this last generation theology. Let me share one more passage with you. It is necessary for God to produce at least one man who has kept the law. Now, notice, if, I don't know if you picked it up, but he's contradicting himself here. Because at the beginning, he said it does not serve the purpose of God um, that he had in mind for only a few to keep it. 
to keep the law. And here it says at least he, he has to produce at least one man who, who's able to keep the law. In the absence of such a man, notice, God loses and Satan wins. The outcome, therefore, hinges on the production of one or more who keeps the commandments of God. On this, God has staked his government. The cross, apparently, wasn't sufficient. Because God needs you and me to vindicate his name. And if we don't become perfect and sinless, Satan wins, God loses. So notice a great controversy hinges on us, not on Christ, not on God. This is this theology that is gaining a lot of traction in our church. As we can see, a lot depends upon us and not on God. In fact, um, some of you remember, before COVID, we had, um, we had a, 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 a quartet, I believe, that was singing. Henry, you remember this, because uh, um, you brought them. <laughs> it, was, it, was part of, it was part of men's ministry. And they, they, they did a great job. It was, it, was, it was fantastic, right? They were police officers, right? But as it turned out, one of the members of this team subscribed to Last Generation Theology. And if, some of you may remember that he had a DVD and he went out in the parking lot and put some of these DVDs on your car windshields. And not everybody got it, but some of, them, some of you that were here remember, yeah, I remember getting this DVD. And I, of course, I did look at the DVD. See, what does the DVD talk about? And it was Last Generation Theology, and it was maybe 40 minutes long. And not once did they talk about Jesus and his sacrifice. It was all about our effort in becoming perfect and sinless. Yeah. But maybe you ask the question, Pastor, what's wrong with being perfect, right? What is, what is the problem with perfection? Well, the trouble is, friends, that um, people who are perfect are incredibly rare, aren't they? I just asked you earlier to lift up your hands to see if you knew anybody perfect. That if you thought you were perfect, you know anybody perfect. There was one or two hands over here that, that maybe you knew somebody. And, and of course, Tara and I was cheating, and, and then he, and he said he was perfect in Christ. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know. It's, it's incredibly rare, isn't it? Yeah. Furthermore, notice, even when individuals are confident that they are doing really, really well, others may see clearly their uh, personal, personally unrecognizing perfections and dispute their claims of faithfulness or faultlessness, I should say. So think about it. I, I may stand here before you and say, listen, I'm getting there. I am, I'm, I'm doing really, really well. I'm getting to the state of perfection and sinlessness. And you guys say, all right, Pastor Nelson, good job. But then you go ask my wife. And she will tell you the reality, right? Because, you know, our spouses know us better than we know ourselves. She'll tell you how it is. Really? <laughs> Perfect. I ask my kids. My, my daughter's already shaking her head. They'll tell you how it really is. Yeah. Now think about it. If we are unable to convince those that are close to us that we are perfect, what assurance can we have that we are indeed perfect and that our perfection will not be tarnished by our lapses? We have lapses, or is it just me? Paul talks about his lapses. Remember Romans 7? We've talked about him before. 
But now let's just say for the sake of argument that you are able to convince even your loved ones that you've achieved a state of perfection. Even if we can persuade others that we have achieved infallibility, how unshakable is our certainty? How sure are we that we're not being self-deceived? Because I want you to think about this. Remember that for every truth that God has, Satan has what? A counterfeit. So if indeed this is God's will, that you achieve the state of sinless perfection before Jesus comes, don't you think Satan is going to try to deceive you on that? He's going to try his best to try to deceive you. If this is really true, he's going to work double time to achieve it. So how do you know he's not deceiving you if this is the case? After all, what does Jeremiah 17, 9 says? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can we be completely certain that what we think is true is actually true and not a misperception from our part? And if we aren't sure, if doubts creep in, does that undermine our standing before God? And what what shall be done with the deep down unsettledness that comes when we think about past wrongs and unconfessed sins? You know, you think about, really, did I confess that sin? That was a long time ago. Can we be certain? What can be done about these persistent apprehensions about the tempestuous time that is coming that that, that where everything that that, that can be shaken will be shaken? You see, we we, we think about this anxiety-provoking questions, and it really unsettles our peace of mind. God wants us to have peace. But when we think about all this, there's not a lot of peace. Worse still, think about this. When confronted with these disturbing issues, there are some who are tempted to abandon Adventism and even turn their backs on Christianity because they cannot reconcile their personal understanding of perfection with their demonstrated inability to achieve it. It is just common sense, friends. Think about it. You believe that God wants you to be perfect, sinless, before Jesus comes. And so you're trying and trying and trying. But the more you try, you fall on your face. The more you try, you fall on your face. And eventually what's going to happen is that you say, well, I know God wants me to be perfect, but his bar is set too high for me. I can't do it. I might as well keep on trying. And you throw in the towel. You see, this is why I believe, and I say this respectfully to my last theology friends, uh, generation friends, because I know a lot of them, but I believe Satan's hand is in this. Because all we're concentrating on is on what our accomplishment, how can I achieve perfection? And if I don't achieve perfection, I might as well keep less, not try anymore because it's impossible for me to do it. Maybe it's possible for you, but not impo- it's impossible for me. Let me just keep on trying. I mean, quit trying, rather. We turn our backs on God. We resent him. Furthermore, friends, this is very important too. If perfection is indeed a requirement for the last generation, which I, of course, believe, I believe we're living in the last generation, don't you? There must be a way for us to recognize when we've gotten there. To know that when indeed we have achieved perfection, it just makes sense. It's common sense. If God wants us to be perfect, as we said earlier, it must be an achievable goal. But not only must it be an achievable goal, there must be a way for me to know when I've gotten there. Does that make sense? And yet, there's nothing in Scripture to suggest that. And certainly nothing in the writings of our last generation theology friends that tells us, okay, as long as you look for this, you achieve perfection. 
But now, what does it mean to be perfect? What is biblical perfection? And we, again, our scripture reading with Matthew 5, 48. Matthew 5, 48. Of course, Matthew 5 is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, of course, speaks about a number of of subjects in the Sermon on the Mount from uh, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. Okay? Now, again, as I've told you many times before, context, context, context. Matthew 5.48, be perfect because, uh, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. But what is the context? Let's look at the context, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So when you look at this passage here, these two passages, what is Jesus focusing on here? What is he focusing on here? Love toward who? Enemy, right? So he's talking about relationships. In particular, relationships toward those who rub us the wrong way, right? Now, of course, the Jews... They, they thought, you know, that's why I said you have heard it said, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, because that was the Jewish understanding of it. They were wrong, of course. Jesus clarified, no, 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 yeah, I, I tell you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you, right? Do good to those who rub you the wrong way and persecute you, right? And friends, it is in that context that verse 48 says, be like your father. Therefore, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect He's talking about relationships. Matthew is not talking at all about here about being perfectly sinless. This is for us to imitate God and how he deals with those who rub him the wrong way. And you say, how do I know that? Well, because when we go to Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, notice what it says. This is Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. But love your enemies... Do good and lend, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Again, we see in the context here, it has to do with relationships. It has to do with how you relate your enemies. Notice, God is kind to the unthankful and evil. And what he's saying is that we should be the same way. He's merciful toward them, and so should we. This has nothing to do with being perfectly sinless at the end. It has to do with relationships and us being like God. In that sense, we ought to be like God. Now, of course... Uh, Matthew uses, Luke uses different words. Matthew uses the word perfect, or at least the English translation, perfect as opposed to merciful in the book of Luke. Now, the word perfect that Matthew uses is the Greek word teleos. Sounds like telea. Teleos. Is that where you got the name from? (laughs) Never mind. I'll hear, I'll hear about it later. <laughs> teleos, and notice what teleos means. It means complete in all parts, full grown, a full age especially of the completeness of Christian character. This is what teleos means. This is the Greek word that is translated as perfect in Matthew 5.48. 
perfect, as we see it, is something that is free from flaws or defects. That's certainly not what teleos means. As you see, teleos, this really talks about uh, maturity. Notice, full-grown, a full is mature. If you, if you were to think about and define it with one word based on what the Greek word is translated as. And this is why looking at a, a concordance is very important to see how these words are used elsewhere. For example, 1 Corinthians 2.6, notice. However, we speak wisdom among those that are who? There are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So notice, friends, that Paul uses the word teleos in 1 Corinthians 2.6. It is the same word that is translated as perfect in Matthew 5.48, but here he translates, the translation is mature. Because that's what the word really means. Teleos means mature. It doesn't mean perfect as we define perfection free from flaw and, 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 and defects. It means to be mature. In fact, if you were to read the uh, Amplified Version of the Bible, now, uh, if you're familiar with the Amplified Version, it's simply uh, a version that often defines a word with, with brackets. So you read a passage and it has a little brackets on it. It sort of defines different statements, different words to make it easier to understand. Uh, um, again, the brackets themselves are obviously aren't inspired, they're added, but it is a good study Bible. Okay? The Amplified Version of Matthew 5.48 says it this way. You therefore be perfect, and what is perfect? Growing into spiritual maturity, both in mind and character, actively integrating godly values in your daily life, as your Father in, is perfect. And so this is what Matthew 5.48 talks about. It has nothing to do with being sinless. It has to do with us growing and being mature, uh, uh, being a, re a reflection of God, how he treats others. We ought to treat them the same way. It has nothing to do with perfection and sinlessness. That's what happens when you study a passage in context, friends. You see, friends, the Christian life is about a continuous advancement, a continuous growth. In other words, you continue to grow. Have you noticed that in your life? Have, you know, you accepted Christ, you, but, you, but, you know, but you know, you've been staying connected to him, so you grow. It's just the natural part of the Christian life. But if it's true that we have achieved a state of perfection or sinlessness sometime before Jesus comes, that means that at some point we will hit the top and we won't need to advance anymore. You know, how can you improve on perfection? Right? So if you, if you have achieved perfection, that means at that point you don't need to grow anymore. Does that make sense? But no, it is a continuous state of advancement. Notice here, um, uh, well, you know what a biblical perspective is. Notice that the definition here is, is simply, it's, it's not a static point in time. Biblical perfection. Not a static point in time. It is rather a dynamic and continuous state of advance here and throughout eternity. We are always going to grow. We're always going to grow. Notice Acts of the Apostles, page 532. The work of transformation from unholiness to holiness is what? It is a continuous one. It continues to advance. Colossians, I mean, uh, Christ Object Lessons, page 332. Even in heaven, we are continually to improve. And think about it. When we're in heaven and sin has done away with, huh, we will continue to grow there. We're, this is not a static. I, I don't get to a point here. Well, here I am. I am perfect. All right. Don't need to do anything else. No, sir. No, sir. Friends, nowhere in the Bible is biblical perfection equated to sinlessness. Nowhere. 
Biblical perfection, friends, refers to a total commitment and loyalty to God that reflects his character, but that allows for the possibility of incidental and accidental weaknesses and mistakes. And again, let me clarify, if someone, if someone is watching, or maybe some of you who may, may, may subscribe to Last Generation Theology, we're not justifying sin here. But the reality is, and all of us can relate to this, all of us can relate to what Paul says, you know, I know the good things that I ought to do and I don't do them. What I end up doing is the things that I know I shouldn't do. Paul says it. 20 years after he had been preaching the gospel, now he writes to the Romans and this is what he says. Again, not justifying sin, we ought to grow. But if you fall, we get up by the grace of God. You see? Just because I fell, it doesn't mean that I'm somehow uh, uh, not biblically perfect anymore. And so when we think about the statement that Mrs. White makes in Christ's Object Lessons, page 69, when, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, he then shall come to claim him as his own. The word reproduce is another way of saying reflect. Uh, or to imitate the character of God. And I would say we do, we do need to make a better, uh, do a better job with that, don't you think? But we reflect the character of Christ. When we stay connected with him through prayer, Bible study, witnessing, uh, actively being involved in church, we are growing in spiritual. Remember, Paul, Todd, Todd talks about, uh, talked about yes, uh, last Sabbath about abiding in Christ, right? About staying connected with him. When we stay connected with him, we will grow. We will become more like him. We will become a reflection of who he is. Yeah. Proverbs 29, 25 says, where a trust in the Lord shall be safe. I think it's safer to throw our, our, ourselves in the arms of our Lord. The Bible assures us that, that on Calvary, Jesus did everything necessary so that you could be declared righteous. You don't have to add anything to it. The Bible guarantees us that neither death nor life, nor height nor, nor, nor depth, nor death, nor life, nor height, nor death, nor anything shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God through Christ Jesus. Nothing. Some of you know this guy, Charlton Heston. He's playing who? Who's this on the screen? Moses. You know, this is my wife's favorite movie, The Ten Commandments. Ask her about it. Huh? She was, she was forced to see this movie every year for I don't know how long. So she hates the movie now. I, I, I actually like it. <laughs> but I'm not allowed to bring it in the house. Charlton Heston. He, uh, um, the, the Ten Commandments, this was 1956, you believe that? That's when the movie came out. He died in uh, 2008 of, um, at 84 years old. Now, Charlton Heston, good actor, he won a lot of awards for his, for his art. But he was not a man to rest in his achievements. In fact, he, was, he just like Christy Hendrick, was sort of a perfectionist, Charlton Heston was. And he said, one of the things about acting or painting or writing or composing music is that you never get it right. You can spend a lifetime, and if you're honest with yourself, never once was your work perfect. People say to me, well, you've got the awards and the parts and the money. What are your goals now? And you know what he said? To get it right one time. 
After all the awards, after everything he did, he still, I, he wanted to get it right one time. Well, maybe, maybe you have felt that you've, you, you haven't gotten it right. You haven't gotten it right yet. And of course, uh, um, it doesn't mean that we ought not to strive to be better. We ought to strive, right? We ought to seek holiness. In fact, Hebrews uh, tells us we ought to pursue holiness. We ought to walk closer to God each day. But friends, even when we walk close to God, we may not get everything right. But guess what? I got good news for you. Jesus got it right. Jesus got it right. He did achieve perfection, and it is because of him, by accepting Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have been declared righteous. In essence, his righteousness, his perfection becomes yours because you become a reflection of who he is. That's what biblical perfection is. In fact, Christ's object lessons 355 says, looking unto Jesus, we obtain a, a brighter and more distinct views of God, and by beholding we are changed. We are transformed into his likeness. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with an unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being what? We're being transformed, right? Into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You remember, if you remember the first image that I, that I, that I showed on the screen when, uh, with the title of the message, the guy is looking himself in the mirror and the reflection is Jesus. When we stay connected to Christ, we become a reflection of Jesus. When we are a perfect reflection of Jesus, we don't have to be worried about anything in our hearts. Oh, you know, am, I hard, am I trying hard enough? You can have peace. You can have wonderful peace when you are reflecting Jesus. Amen? Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.